The Australian Football Video Film Festival podcast is proudly brought to you by LeagueTees.com.au, the retro footy fan gear that makes every week retro round. The League Tees footy shop is packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies, and all things retro footy. That's LeagueTees.com.au. Name the game series from Australian football video. Have you ever bought or rented a videotape that wasn't quite right? Folks, let me warn you. It's bruising, bloody, and very much in your face. And we've pulled out stuff that would make a 16-stone wharfie cry. the last quarter, but a hundred minutes of top footy action. Welcome to the 90s, the decade that delivered. It was a 10-year period in football unlike any other this century. The electrifying 80s, the highs and lows of a dynamic decade of football. Over the next two hours, relive some of the most exciting moments in VFL football in the sensational seven. The Peter Hudson story, Dublin's Jim, the story of Jimmy Steins, the road to victory, Collingwood's struggle to the premiership and the year of the rising saints, St Kilda's fight to the 1991 finals. Sensational 70s, part one. Arguably the greatest football film ever made. So important that we've split it into two parts. Normally, I would read the synopsis on the back of the video at the start of each episode of the Australian Football Video Film Festival, but I figured it was best to leave the introduction to the one and only Peter Landy. The 70s have been a decade of change. Ten years that have reshaped Australia's most exciting and popular sport. From those black and white days of 1970, when players wore short, neat haircuts and coaches frowned on the cultivation of any facial hair, we've seen the sideburn, the crew cut, the afro, the headband, and of course, a procession of moustaches. From midway through the 1970 grand final, when Ron Barassi urged his sinking Carlton players to handball for their lives, we've seen a new brand of football. Compare the stop-start game of the early 70s with the blistering pace of today's football. The use of handball as an attacking weapon has changed the whole style of our great Australian game. On the field, it's been a cavalcade of personalities. The stars like Ron Barassi, Alex Jesselenko and Gary Dempsey have survived. Hundreds have reached the heights and then plummeted from sight. Off the field, the game has become highly commercialised, sponsored in every conceivable way, from logos on jumpers to massive hoardings on the fences of every ground. Over the next two hours, relive some of the most exciting moments in VFL football in the Sensational 70s. My guests for the Sensational 70s Part 1 and 2 is the senior writer for the AFL record and author of the newly released book, 2020, A Season Like No Other, the one and only Ashley Brown. Oh, it's a December 
the days grow short When you reach September When you talk about all-time classics and the greatest movies ever made, what are you, what are you thinking? You're thinking your Citizen Kane, your Casablanca, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Jaws, A Clockwork Orange. Nah, not here at the Australian Football Video Film Festival. When you think about the great trilogies, do you think the Star Wars trilogy, the original one? No, nah, we don't. We think about the sensational 70s, the electrifying 80s, and the 90s, the decade that delivered. And we're here this week... And the next week to talk about arguably the granddaddy of them all, the goat of football cinematic masterpieces. It is, of course, the sensational 70s. And joining me this week is my guest reviewer, senior writer for the AFL record, Mr. Ash Brown. Ash, welcome to the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Uh, Dylan, it is an absolute privilege to be here. I can't believe it's taking me this long to get to the greatest football video ever made and ever will be made. It truly is the granddaddy of them all. How significant is Sensational 70s? It's just fantastic. I mean, growing up, I mean, the 70s was the decade that I discovered footy and fell in love with the game. So to have an hour and 40 minutes just devoted to the the, the highlights and, as we'll discuss, the myths and brawls of the 1970s is just absolute heaven. It's heaven on earth. It's wonderful and the chance to sit down and watch it again in anticipation of doing this podcast with you is to give me great uh, pleasure and joy and a lot of giggles and jaw-dropping moments, and it's it's just wonderful. And I think for a lot of people my age, and you know, I'm in my 50s, it was the – we just love it so much because it's when we fell in love with the game, and it's just reminders as to why we did it. It really is, as we'll get into it, it's, just, it's such a different era of football. It is in so, so many ways unrecognisable from the – and the game we still love today, that's just so different. You are right about so different because one of the things I noticed re-watching Sensational 70s, and I, I watched it a bit as a kid because naturally it was one of those footy videos that everyone watched. Even Like I wasn't obviously around in the 70s, but everyone watched Sensational 70s. I'd forgotten just how violent that video was. Now, we've spoken about biffs, bumps and brawlers on this show before, but really Sensational 70s is arguably more violent well, not only that, but it celebrates the violence. It's like <laughs> we were talking off air about this. In the first 90 seconds of the first year, they get a couple of introductory remarks and bang, straight into the bank. <laughs> and uh, there's no getting away from how much a part of the selling point of the game. And maybe the sad reflection on, the, on those times, it was the selling point of the game. I think, this is one some homework for you, I reckon they brought out a video called Violent Saturday. It was either a book or a video or a film around the same time. It was just fully in on, on the violence. And I reckon that was, this is almost a complimentary video that took the very best of the violence from Violence Saturday and, and put into this sort of documentary about the decade. But it's, it's quite remarkable. It's just that the violence and, and the clever writing from the late, great Stephen Phillips 
to basically find different ways of introducing every every viral sequence in every year. It's just he deserves a writing award just for that. Oh, no one celebrates Stephen Phillips' ability to narrate uh, football videos than this podcast. I, I, I can assure you of that. The man uh, gets uh, gets straight to the Hall of Fame at the Australian Football Video Film Festival with legend status, if you mind you. But there's so much in this video because um, not only is it just a collection of magnificent football vision um, and very rare football vision because not only has it got highlights from those old Channel 7 broadcasts from back in the day, there's that, you know, direct vision, there's news vision, um, there's sort of eight real, uh, reel-to-reel kind of old newsreel kind of vision as well. Um, there's that, imagine there's also throughout the documentary the seven coaches that were all in grand finals just having a chat with each other. Just could you imagine being a yeah, final was, for that. Yeah, well, it was a really- few years since I watched it, and then when I sat down to watch it again in, in anticipation of coming to this podcast, it reminded straight away that the video comes up straight away, and that's how remarkable it was to get these guys into a room to talk about each of the grand finals, and whoever thought of it at the time, and it wasn't Steve, and not Stephen Phillips' voice off camera, so I'm not sure who it was, but it was a really smart move, and someone somewhere you would think, and there's no certainty in this day and age, because so much great footage was destroyed by Channel 7, both deliberately and by accident. You'd love to know where the original was around there somewhere, the original footage of these guys. Imagine talking to hours about not just the grand finals, but the footy in the time. But, John, the reason this is a great video, and we laugh, we, we can wax political about it and revel in the nostalgia, it's actually a living document of that decade. There's no finer documentation of what was such an important decade than this video. We did something with the footy record of the 70s, uh, footy record a couple of years ago, and uh, you know we had a crack at it. But really, it, it, even the video leaves anything else we could have written to shame because it's just it's just there to be watched, and you can just you understand the history of the game just by watching the video. Don't need to read anything. Don't know about footy in the seventies. Don't read anything necessarily. Watch this video. And not only just to go back on the production of the video, and you're right about how important the historical document sensational seventies is. Not only has it got great vision. But like all films, it has a magnificent soundtrack. Um, of course, oh. avid, avid listeners of this show will tell that we've used Classical Gas as our theme. That's because it was used in Sensational 70s. I'll do Classical Gas! Um, but what? What? There's uh, Willie Nelson at the start. So. But the days grow short when you reach September. I think there's uh, there's that weird Beatles uh, instrumental. There's that babyface song and the Rocky theme, and up there Kazali at the very end. It's brilliant. It's- it's just fantastic, and I don't know how it had to rush to some of the music and not to the others, but it's just, uh, you know, I think there's almost a barbershop quartet sort of oompa loompa band might get in there at some stage as well. So the music is great. Everything about it is great. Um, the fashion, we're going to get to Peter Landy wearing the, you know, he was a fashion star. Peter Landy was one of the best-dressed people in town, renowned for his fashion sense. So when you see the powder blue three-piece outfit that he Wears at the start and all, all the way through, gets an idea for what the smart men around town were wearing at the time. And 
You speak about Peter Landy. Peter Landy's intro is brilliant. I assume Stephen Phillips wrote it. Would you? Would you? Would you would assume, I don't think Peter Landy wrote it somehow. Any- uh, I reckon. I reckon Peter Landy wrote it. Oh, you reckon Peter because Landy it was, wrote it? it? Yeah, because I reckon it was written, written in a similar vein to how he used to script the opening to the, the football replay Dylan, back in the seventies. Uh, the seven big leagues that he hosted. Uh, of course, similar sort of word structure. So, uh, of course, I'll, but- I'll back in that Landy. Was- All right. We'll, we'll give I'm Land- not his trusty typewriter. We'll give Landy credit for it, and La- and Landy is a star in many an Australian football film festival production, and we have covered Peter Landy's stylings in- extensively throughout the series. <laughs> but um, you talk about Landy and fashion; he even makes that observation about fashion in the very start of the show. When um, you know, he, I think it's something he goes uh, from those black and white days of 1970s when players wore short, neat haircuts and coaches frowned on the cultivation of any facial hair. We've seen the sideburn the afro, the crew cut, and, of course, a procession of moustaches. In those black and white days of 1970, when players wore short, neat haircuts and coaches frowned on the cultivation of any facial hair, we've seen the sideburn, the crew cut, the afro, the headband, and, of course, a procession of moustaches. And what about the editorial and the commercialism of the game? I mean, how do you feel now? I mean, he's quite managed with him, so he's not like he's... He's passed on, but you know, if he thought the 70s was commercial, <laughs> my God, what would he be thinking? What about now? Off the field, the game has become highly commercialised, sponsored in every conceivable way, from logos on jumpers to massive hoardings on the fences of every ground. Pete's in for a shock these days. Uh, I'm sure he's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure Pete goes on a lot of rants when he's sitting in his retirement home in Noosa about the state of the game these days, uh, dear old Pete. Good friend of the program. He's a great man. I spoke to him on the radio a few years ago. He's, he's, a, he's a fabulous guy. can tell some stories. I think he was on Front Bar a couple of years ago and pretty much stole the show. Um, so, Sensational 70s. Uh, I've done my research in terms of when it uh, aired uh, because, of course, it wasn't a video release straight away. It was a made-for-television event. And obviously, in those days, there was no YouTube, and there probably was very little uh, football video available, bar a couple of, what, newsreels, or video was sort of just coming out towards the late 70s. Would that be would that be right? Well, in the 70s, there were three that you could get a Phillips video play, you get a beta, mm. or you could get um, VHS. And if you want to tape something and you're, you taped it on a better or Phillips, chances are you couldn't watch it at someone else's house or whatever. So there were three distinct types. But video was just coming into into vogue. So um, but the smart people had this video and would have watched it for a long time until, until eventually it was digitised. And, of course, now we can see it on YouTube at any time you like. But it was just to sit down and watch this complete recap of the 70s. And for someone like me, I mean, I started playing footy. He was so probably in 72. When I was a kid, and I sort of started watching the games. But even to things up episodes I'd read about from 1771, the first time I watched this show when it was on in '79 was the first time I'd, I'd seen. Uh, it was the first time I saw Lee Matthews flatten Barry Cable, for example. Sensational seventies aired at eight thirty on Wednesday, the twenty sixth of September, nineteen seventy nine. It was prime time. Midweek viewing on HSV Channel 7 Melbourne. Uh, it was a top night's viewing too. I've, I've got the TV guide. I found the age green guide from that week. Uh, so it aired at 8.30 on the uh, Wednesday night. It was also repeated at midday prior to the 1979 grand final. So a lot of people wonder why the 1979 grand final isn't on it. It's not because Collingwood 
a Collingwood supporter just destroyed that bit. That's why it's not on there because it aired that grand final week. But it was a good night's viewing. Um, you could have watched the Paul Hogan show at, at 7.30 on Channel 9 and then flicked over to uh, Sensational 70s at 8.30. That would have just been the most 1970s night of viewing you could have possibly have on television. Well, the, the best TV in the, the – that would have been up there with Saturday afternoon VFA on Channel O. Yep followed by the winners on the ABC at 5 o'clock into Countdown at 6 o'clock on the ABC, which was the best TV. I've only watched World of Sport, of course, before then. So right. um, that would take that. This was an outstanding TV block. Yeah, just, just non-stop quality programming. Um, it is such an iconic documentary. Um, I've just – there's so much to cover. So listeners are going to note what we're going to do with the sensational 70s because – we want to make sure that this film gets the proper treatment. That the any of any film from the Holy Trinity, the sensational seventies, electrifying eighties, nineties, the decade that gets that the decade that delivered, I should say. God, the nineties had a crap name compared to the other two. Um, we're going to go by year by year, and this is going to be a two parter. And it's good to split the seventies because the first half we've got black and white, and in the second half we get into glorious color. Yes colour television in the second half. But in this first half, we're going to look from 1970 to 1974. Ash, are you ready to rip into it? Let's uh, strap ourselves in and uh, have a glass of Mark's lemonade and get back into it. All right. Well, why don't you just light up a Marlboro as well while you're at it? Because, uh, you know, it, it is. The, we don't need to go outside. It's the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's <laughs> Just 20 years ago, it was a cow paddock, but it grew and kept on growing until April 18, when Geelong and Fitzroy played the inaugural match at BFL Park. Ah, yes, 1970, and uh, they don't muck around. It's a glorious, glorious time for the VFL. A dream has come true. The future of football is here because VFL Park at Waverley has opened. I love the fact with uh, the very first thing they showed was um, that did obligatory aerial shot. I showed Gareth Andrews taking a shot for goal for Geelong. Now, Gareth Andrews is one of the best people you could hope to meet in footy, but he was a terrible kick. But in the 70s, you could get away with being a good mark, a good key position player, as Gareth was, and a terrible kick for goal. He does kick straight at this goal. He kick on the first goal there, but let's show it on the, on the video, but just a really ugly kick for goal. Because in those days, if you could get the ball, it didn't really matter. As long as you get the ball, they sort of they make up a shortcoming such as your kicking style. That was the first thing of many that struck out for me watching it again was uh, watching you know, Gareth Andrews kick because a lot of guys got around the 70s with kicking styles like that. Neil Basanko and Rod Austin are two that come to mind. And so that was the first game at VFL Park between, uh, I think it was Fitzroy and Geelong? Yeah, it was. At round three. But, and again, they had a silly rule. They wouldn't play VFL Park. They put them into a stadium. PFL, they wouldn't play games in the first few rounds of the season. Every team had to play a home game on their home ground before they started playing the games out at Waverley in round three, and that was a rule right to the 70s. But uh, there, there was a bit of editorial as to why VFL Park was People born. complained bitterly that money was being wasted on a stadium out in the sticks. But on this day, more than 25,000 fans made the trip to Waverley to see the opening. Although Geelong beat Fitzroy by 61 points, the real winner was the vast new complex. Because, uh, we, of course, throughout Sensational 70s, we've spoken about Peter Landy, but the true star of Sensational 70s is uh, Don Rainsford. Now, he's the voiceover man. 
Yes. My recollection growing up in the 70s, every TV station had a distinctive voiceover person. Pete Smith, who many people know, he was the voice of Channel 9. Mm. Don Rainsford was the voice of Channel 7. I don't know who the ABC or Channel Channel 10 was. But if you you close your eyes, if you walked through and heard Don Rainsford talking, you knew it was Channel 7. The same thing if, with Pete Smith at Channel 9. And at 7, you'd, talk, you know, you'd be introducing the, the show, the show that's just finished, the show that's about to come on, other bits and pieces. But at 7, you had to be credible when it came to footy. And Don Rainsford could, uh, clearly knew his footy just from the magnificent delivery of the highlights all through this, uh, all through this video. Yes, well, he, he wanted to know why, why so much money was being spent wasted on a stadium out in the sticks. I think it was value for money but if we go look at the history of VFL Park. And uh, VFL Park does feature prominently throughout Sensational 70s. The future of football, it's gonna, it's coming. The grand final's going to be there. It's going to hold 160,000. The place is going to be magnificent. <laughs> I know. It was just uh, what we saw in 1970 was just the first of about 10, part one of about 10 parts special to build it. <laughs> Um, but it, it, there's two significant errors because it starts with the start of VFL Park, so Waverley opens, and then Ted, then we get straight into Teddy Whitten's retirement. And, of course, there's that uh, probably what you'd have to go in the top five most iconic bits of vision in football history of his uh, You've Got to Inspire Me speech in his final match. It's going to be a do-or-die effort. It's going to be a determined thing. You've got to show me all the guts and all the determination you've got in your body. You've got to inspire me with this last quarter bit. His players responded to the call and went on to give Footscray's most beloved son a farewell to remember with a three-point win over Hawthorne at the Western Oval. Yeah, that's right. That was the famous, uh, his famous last game. Um, he was made for TV, Ted Whitten. He was the first, he was the Patrick Dangerfield of his time because he could play, not, not it said he wasn't as dirty, but he could, like, he, the more media he did, the better he played. He was a showman. He understood the media, um, could play, could coach. He was everything. He was a huge figure. You know, he and Rob Rathy had the argument over who was Mr. and Mrs. Football. Um, very different in a lot of ways. But, uh, yeah, and the Ted Whitten farewell game in 1970 against Hawthorne, uh, where they, he, they, he did inspire them, they did end up winning. Um, yeah, famous piece of footage. And you still get chills watching it now. You stop whatever you're doing to watch it. They don't muck around in Sensational 70s, so uh, let's not muck around. Do we want to show more actual football highlights? No, no, no. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's show the Biffo. That was that. That is a prominent prominent theme <laughs> throughout the documentary. And uh, the first year, 1970, 1970, does not miss. No, it's a violent year. <laughs> violent year, wasn't it? We talked about it already. It was uh, and glorified and celebrated um, on the on the video, and too many to go through here. But uh, yeah, some stuff now that it, it wouldn't. Don't even happen in local footy these days. The sort of stuff I get away with league footy back in nineteen seventy. But and you, it's just so laissez affair and just like it's just accepted. Like I think it's it's like you know, oh Doug Wade just punches Ken Greenwood in the stomach and slaps his face. Doesn't get off. You know, just just common assault. Oh, doesn't get off. He just you know got off with a week. Geelong's Doug Wade got a nudge in the stomach from Footscray's Ken Greenwood and two weeks for slapping his face. And then they saw the players' vote, of course, and then we've gone to the tribunal on the Monday night or Tuesday night, or wherever it was held, and. Uh, 
Well, after, you know, after decking someone just about breaking their jaw, nothing happened, no contact. No, nah, no, nah, uh, it was just an accident. Beforehand, work out, work out their lines and the play. That's why <laughs> we're several episodes in this um, in this video where some heinous acts have happened to them. And uh, as even Don Rain said, makes the point so magnificently through the video, uh, didn't get didn't get suspended for this incident. Mm, I think it's a Carl Dietrich uh, is a frequent flyer in the Biffo highlights. Uh, what I read, he, he gets four and then gets another two uh, upon return for using abusive language. And I don't know what the, what kind of words he would have said on the football field, but there, there wasn't any trial by video at the VFL Tribunal in 1970 either. So player's code was all that. No, the, the player's code was thriving. Big Carl got off this time. On the receiving end was Hawthorne's Neil Ferguson. And then it was Big Carl yet again. He got four weeks for biffing the hapless Greenwood. Dittridge made a third appearance that year and got two weeks for using abusive language. The trauma video came in later in the decade, in the 73, 74 perhaps, I think. They started to use video footage and that changed things a little bit. But, uh, and the player and the tribunal members were all past players. I didn't think to you know, perhaps get a neutral non-player in there or a former umpire or you know, a, a lawyer. It was just past players. So the player code is always going to win out at the tribunal. Justice, justice at its finest. The player code. Long may it prosper. Um, big. So this is what I love: is that you get something like you get the Biffo highlights out of the way, but let's just you know skip the significant thing that you know it was actually the the first year where I think three full forwards kicked the ton. Yeah, it was um, yeah, McKenna, Hudson, and Jezelenko all kicked the ton. Great photo taken around that time of the three of them playing billiards. It's in Peter McKenna's book, My World of Football, which is the first footy book I got that came out in 73. But Dan Eddy, uh, Dr. Dan Eddy, a uh, friend of mine, and I hope I think yours as well, he uh, he got them together for, to recreate that photo uh, a few months ago, the three of them playing billiards together. So, yeah, it was a, a great time, the full forwards. And then, of course, uh, McKenna kicks the 100. And then, look at this, from Mike Williamson as the kids invade the ground. I mean, he's obviously not going to do it, but... Uh, Every time the kids are on the ground, and there's a lot of episodes of that through this video for 100 goals, the commentators are surprised. He kicks it high into the goal square. They fly down to the ground. It comes. Kick off the With this goal, he brought up his century, becoming the first Collingwood player to do so since Ron Todd in 1939. McKenna went on to kick a club record of 143 goals for the season. That's true. That's true. They, um... They, they seem bemused as to why does this keep on happening? How could this be? <laughs> <laughs> it's always been the case. Although I think... That's right. And then it did happen in the finals. For some reason, people knew not to go and do the finals. But if it happened at a home and away game, as many as you can get on the ground, good luck to you. Yeah, home and away, it's sort of like an etiquette. If it's home and away, go for your life. If it's a final, that's more important. Don't yeah. run onto the ground. <laughs> yeah, uh, run the ground, yeah. There's far more at stake here. Um but there's it is a huge it's a big year of first the decade as I said 1970 they don't muck around um, you get the first ever you get things like a they they cover the news at the time there was a players strike at Collingwood um, uh, because I think Collingwood at the time had something where everyone just got the same pay they were, they were very much a socialist club back then uh, and uh, you saw things where the first ever Sunday match was played well that was a one off from the Queen came uh, the Royal Family came to visit that is it. I, we wrote the story about the record not long ago. That's only came for the second half. The players that can change at half time to clean clothes and line up at half time to, to be introduced to all family. 
And of course, it was Lowry Fitzroy against Richmond that was unfurling its premiership flag. Dylan, you'll be not pleased to know that Fitzroy won. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Good luck to him. I'm sure they have a reunion for that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so it was a lot, a lot of first Fitzroy moved to Junction Oval. That was a big deal. Um, kind of, well, right. Norm Smith went to coach South Melbourne a few years ago. Uh, Bob Scotton played his first final in 1970 after all those years of like when Robbie, you know, you'll touch on this in the electrifying 80s when Robbie Flower finally played a final for Melbourne as well. It was a very big deal for Skilton after three Brownlows in a magnificent career to finally run on the MCG in September. So that was a that was a big deal as well. Um, so, yeah, it was the year of first. Uh, it was at the televised Brownlow uh, with Peter Bedford for the first time. So a lot happened. It was sort of a, the very early growing pains of a, of, a, of a league that realised it could be bigger and a sport that realised it could be bigger than it actually was. And some very small steps were taken down that path, I, I've always said, in 1970. You mentioned the first ever televised Brownlow. Um, I think the footage does not exist you, um, because in Sensational 70s, there's nothing from that broadcast of the very first Brownlow that was televised. So it's just vision of uh, Peter Bedford from South Melbourne who won, uh, running through his specially made Peter the Great banner and just doing a lap of honour at the MCG. There's nothing from the actual uh, Brownlow telecast. So I, I assume the footage doesn't exist because if it's not in Sensational 70s, it's def- I don't think it's in the yeah, archives of Channel 7. No, someone probably taped over it for an episode of uh, It's Academic or something. But it was... Um yeah, and the first round was at the Delicious Hall. It was a dollar a ticket. And the reports out of it said they thought it was a successful event to open to the public, but it was very much like a sportsman's night. Just blokes would go, you know, after work, have several, have many frothies and watch the brown light count taking place below them. I think the following year they turned into a dinner dance at, or some sort of dinner event at Chaucer's mm. in Canterbury. Yes, just to imagine the uh, not only the, the the loose sportsman's night, but the waft of cigarette smoke that would have been going on inside there. You see, the, the Brownlow featured throughout Sensational 70s, and there's just people just lighting up and darting up throughout. No shortage of that. Um, now, we can't possibly mention 1970 without the 1970 grand final. Is this the greatest game of football ever played? A lot of historians will say it is, or it's the most, maybe not the greatest game ever played, but is it, the, is it still the most significant game of football that's ever been played? I would say it is, based for a couple of reasons. The figure 121696, which is for football, what 99.94 is to cricket. Um, the handball, handball, handball from Lombarassi, um Changed the, yeah, that changed the game. I mean, handball became more prevalent from the very thing about footy that hasn't changed in, is that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. So, if you're going to win a team premiership one year, then uh, every team's going to try it on the following year. So, that makes it significant. The comeback as well, Jez's mark. Yes, I didn't think he was going to play it, Mike. You were spot on. Okay. To the wing position on the member stand side. Oh, Let's enjoy this mark of Alex Jezelenko's again. It was the mark of the year in 1970 and one of the marks of the 70s. Just, it had everything. Um, again, to digress slightly, there was a fantastic production came out last year that merged three or four radio calls with the grand final, plus the TV calls, including the ABC and the Channel 9 call, as well as the Channel 7 call. Um, the Australian Film and Sound Archive got involved in it. And the radio commentary, I mean, we all know the TV commentary because we've seen so many times, but the radio commentary is outstanding. 
it's absolutely outstanding. It was just such a – and you tell from the radio commentary as well what a momentous win this was by Carlton. And, of course, uh, Don Rainsford illustrates it perfectly, the 1970 grand final. We only get a couple of minutes of it, but, you know, he mentions Jez's mark. Can't, can't not mention Jez's mark. And, of course, probably the greatest cameo of any football match ever, Ted Hopkins. And the, a bit part, what did he say? It's a, a bit part turned star billing from Ted Hopkins. Ted Hopkins had been assigned a bit part in the 1970 grand final. He ended up taking star billing in front of a record crowd of 121,000 people. Yeah, that's right. Well, Hopkins comes off the bench, kicks four goals in the second half and plays one game of football after that. But then later on, makes a huge contribution to the game as the god, as the father of the stats revolution. So, yeah, just the game had everything and it really did kickstart. You know, as, as we talked about, it was a sport that had some ambition and wanted to grow. And this game was a perfect platform for football to become the dominant sport. You know, I think after this game, you know, all the CFLs was then would, you know, Happily called themselves. I think it was always a battle with cricket and rugby league. But I think the VFL after this game had quite confidence from then on. And it hasn't changed now to say we're the biggest sport in the country. And, of course, it's after the 70 grand final, it's the first part where we meet the coaches, where we get that iconic chat of the coaches. Um, as we mentioned, literally, I think all of them are in the Hall of Fame. And you've got... Um, uh, I think it's a bit of back and forth between uh, Ron Barassi, John Nichols, and Bob Rose chatting about that grand final. A lot of people think that Carlton's revival began with that second half. It really started at half time when Brass, uh, amongst other things, just uh, you know sort of ran into us, just play on handball, looking you know, and we can't be any worse. We've just got to try something, and that's really when it started. You know, plus Teddy Hopkins. We seem to panic a little bit, and looking at the replays over the years, I've noticed that many of our players flew together and spoiled each other and the ball came to the ground and this uh, suited the style of game that you were playing at that time That's with the right. handball. It's just fantastic for these guys to have that conversation about about the game um, and the honesty with which they talk. You know, with a few years have passed now, I mean, it was still in 79, those videos. So with the passage of time, the reflections of Barassi and Bob Rose and John Nichols about that game is just—it's just fascinating. They—they uh, you know, uh, leading into the camera, and you know, it's, a, it's a conversation. And the camera work is great; it's just a fly on the wall, not a, not really intrusive. Just capturing these legends of the game talking footy and telling war stories about the great games ever played. It really is wonderful. And as it talked about, wouldn't it be wonderful to find original footage somewhere and all the other stuff that would contain? And the fashion too. Barassi's just got those magnificent collars and uh, I think uh, a couple of them, I think it's Hayfi and Park and have the skivvies with the sponsor logo on the neck and uh, John well, Nichols is wearing Well, I want to talk a... about Park and Windvale. Yeah. It was famous in, in his Windvale uh, <laughs> crew neck or whatever it's called. It's uh, famous and very iconic 70s fashion. First of the sponsored gear. Let's have a look at 1971. The 1971 season opened sensationally at Arden Street when reigning premiers Carlton were toppled by the 1970 Wooden Spooners, North Melbourne. One of the things you do notice uh, that's prevalent throughout the sensational 70s in both the black and white and colour era, Ash, 
is the grounds. And uh, the grounds are just in mint condition. And I don't mean mint. I mean they are all mud heaps, bog heap mud <laughs> covered in crepe paper. There is not a clean oval in sight. And you can tell in black and white and the colour just enhances it. And uh, I think it starts with that vision of uh, North Melbourne doing a number on Carlton. The Wooden Spooners beating the uh, reigning premiers uh, at Arden Street. And G Arden Street just looks like a magnificent complex. <laughs> Well, I had, a, I had a couple of dirty days at Arden Street uh, over the time. It was a sort of quirky ground at which to watch footy. Um, but that would have been, I think it was round one. So the ground then would have been in reasonable condition. The season started in the first weekend of April. But, yeah, they deteriorated pretty quickly, didn't they? Um, with the cricket pitches in the middle and not a lot of care going into, into their maintenance from week to week. And, yeah, you really do see some horrible playing conditions right throughout the decade. We'll talk later on about 77, which was the one of the wettest seasons on record. Um, but, yeah, it was, a, it was a battle for these players to, to to get through some awful conditions. And just about every ground, with the exception of the VFL Park, which was the, you know, had the uh, all the mod cons, it was difficult going. There's Don Rainsford gold throughout. In fact, just about everything Don Rainsford said the, the narrator, Don Rainsford, said turns to gold in this documentary. But there's one passage early on in 1971 I absolutely love. And I think today's uh, – the, the sort of clickbaity your news.com Fox Sports uh, journos would have a field day with a headline like this. But uh, there, there's a bit there, he goes. To add to Barassi's woes at Carlton, at this time was a wrangle when he had, with, uh, he had an issue with Adrian Gallagher. Uh, Adrian Gallagher's fiancé, who claimed Barassi had handled his men like little boys. To answer Barassi's worries at this time was a wrangle he had had with Adrian Gallagher's fiancé, who claimed that Barassi treated his men like little boys. Oh, can you imagine it now? Oh, can you imagine SEN Digital Fox Footy would just have a field day with it? I've, I've already written the headline. It's WAG Slams AFL Legend. <laughs> That's right. That's ex- that's right. It, and there'd, yeah, be, there'd be. be a couple of eye emojis. There'd be the eye emoji, uh, angry emoji, and fire. As you would have said on Instagram first as well. It would have been Instagram posts yeah, yeah. picked up by someone and yeah. we take it from there. So, <laughs> but Brassie was like that. He was a tyrant. I mean, he got he had success, but he drove them. And, um, but a lot of the people Brassie fell out with came back to him later on. Adrian Gallagher followed him to a couple of clubs later on. So coach, so they all had time for Brass in the end. Um, and then, you know, we see a bit of, uh, we meet a young man by the name of Sam Kekovich, uh, who, who stars one week, he stars one week, and then the next he, he belts Barry Breen. Um, I think it's uh, because he, uh, well, Kekovich could be brilliant, he had this, he was like a stick of dynamite with a short fuse, as Donnie Rainson says. While Kekovich could be brilliant, he was like a stick of dynamite with a short fuse. Just one week later, he exploded. After this tangle with St Kilda's Barry Breen, he was suspended for two matches. Um, the Biffo is fabulous as well, because it's basically introduct. This, this this is how every year is formatted in Sensational 70s. It's a highlight from early on, and then they go, no, 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 we don't want to watch the football. Let's go straight <laughs> into the Biff. <laughs> straight into the Biff. Yeah, great Biff every year. Um, great. It's 71. There was, there was loads of it again. Celebrated, as always. 1971 was a hard, bruising year. Other stuff happened in 71. I mean, it was... Uh, Pete Upton dominated. 
and you've got me notes. You, uh, Grand Ferry Oval, just a weird ground, you know, sardine shaped, you know, uh, long but really narrow. Hudson's played it magnificently. Um, there's footage from that one or from that year, I think. He kicks a goal, his flat mongrel punt. It's remarkable how many goals he kicked for debate. He didn't kick a drop, never kicked a drop punt. These flat mongrel punts that would move every single which way, but would always dead eye strike. Guy was a guy was an absolute freak. We've got guys in glasses, Dylan, Jeff Blethen. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of incidents in the seventies of guys still playing with glasses. Um, so that was another thing of, of that era. You didn't see much anymore. And um, how this this line you liked, the earth shook when John Nichols went down. The earth shook when John Nichols went down. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And there's also the other one. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, Norm Busy gave Bruce Sherpa a cuddle. Norm Bussell gave Bruce Sherpa a cuddle. In the, in the Biffo montage. Uh, <laughs> which is just... <laughs> the great Norm Bussell, Hawthorne, tough man. Tough halfback flanker, old school. He gave him a cuddle. Um, uh, and uh, I think there's some Peter McKenna highlights, but they just plug his album at the time. Uh, things to remember. They didn't play anything. We spoke about the epic soundtrack of uh, Sensational 70s. They could get the rights to Willie Nelson and uh, the Beatles, but uh, <laughs> Peter McKenna wouldn't let them be part of it. McKenna ended the season with 134 goals and a reputation as a singer. His record of Things to Remember sold 7,000 copies. Remember the fight when you know you're right. Remember. Eddie McKenna was, and I said I had his book. The, my world of football. He was a rock star, and even though by this stage, by the age six, I was already rusted on Hawthorne supporter. I loved Peter McKenna. Mm. I had hair like him. I had the mop top. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was on Channel Nine in the morning, mm-hmm. and then he would go on play for Collingwood in the afternoon. He was bigger than big. He was absolute superstar, and the first football idol with so many people. Well, you being a Hawthorne supporter, of course you like Peter McKenna because according to him, you can never, ever ride off the Hawks. <laughs> no, he would love the Hawks later on. He was a, he was a closet Hawthorne supporter, I think. But he, he was that then. I mean, he was now, I mean, we talk about rock football rock stars, um, none bigger. I, I don't think, I'm not sure I've seen a bigger sort of rock star footballer because he embraced it all. It's been football. I mean, Dusty, look at Dusty now. Dusty Martin being absolute superstar. But he, he shuns all that sort of stuff. McKenna embraced it. There's some... So, as we mentioned, the format is a couple of highlights from early on. Biffo, great marks. I think there's some great ones in the black... And they still look magnificent in the black and white. There's a particular one from Peter Knights that's just brilliant in 71. Um, And then I think it's worth noting... I think we've got to cover something that you'll be more than happy to speak about here, Ashley. Uh, the 1971 grand final between the Hawks and the Saints. And uh goes without saying, Peter Hudson. Well, he, uh, there's some good editing. It's a good commentary missed out in this, in this video. Um, when he runs into open goal and he misses, he kicks it, I don't know how he misses it, from 15 metres, 15 yards out, sorry, to get the vernacular right, the terminology right. So he's on the full and, uh, you know, you get the, oh, from Mike Williams. Oh, he's back. 
Hudson had plenty of chances, but none as easy as this shot in the dying minutes of the game. He missed the goal and Pratt's record. But then he says afterwards that somehow I don't think he's destined to break that record, which is really sage piece of commentary, but it got left out. If you watch the game video, you see that, of course, but uh, got left out of this video. But yeah, that 71 grand final was uh, incredible. Hudson and Bob Pratt did all this media during the week. The build-up was incredible. Hawthorne had to win the game. But it was a great game of football. I mean, the toughest, dirtiest first half. And we that talked about violent. violence. David Parkin says that this game, the first half was played entirely without the ball. And it just goes on and on. And you watch the, in his video, it goes, I think that's just three minutes. Yeah. Just the vibe. Before they get to the match, before the game highlights, it just clash after clash after clash. It's incredible. It is the filthiest, dirtiest game of football I've ever played. And you know what happened at the end of the season? To go and Hawthorne play a social cricket match. Really? Yeah. Off the field, they were best mates. That's brilliant. I did like um, – we go back to that legendary chat with all the coaches at the time, uh, and this is our first sighting of David Parkin in the Windvale uh, skivvy, um, which, by the way, Anthony at League Tees, our proud sponsors, if you are uh, thinking of a new product, I think Ash would happily purchase a Windvale skivvy if, <laughs> if League Tees had one available. I think it's uh, words along the lines of – if we were going to go down, we may as well go down with a bang. That we would, if we're going to go down, we ought to go down with a bang. And he was talking in a sense that we might lose the thing. And I remember Scotty, uh, you know, I was captain of the sky, but Scotty uh, brought the blacks together again. Also, they grouped up again. They went away, and he said, "What's he talking about losing?" He said, "We'll win it." And I think Scott set the patterns, as um, Alan has already mentioned, from the centre bounces. And- well, it's a famous Hawthorne story that. Um- Kendi, and Kenny talks about it. He, he, he dressed the team three-quarter times. He says, if you're going to go down, go down, fighting him in the Hawthorne spirit. And Parkin didn't say anything much as the captain. But then uh, as the team before they broke up, Don Scott keeps him in there and says, what's he talking about? Going down, we're going to win the game. It's like a famous story out of Hawthorne. And then, of course, within 30 seconds of the last quarter, they're all the momentum's with Hawthorne. And they, in the next 15 minutes, they turn around, move Bob Key to full forward. Um, hadn't had a kick till three quarter time. They turn around and win the game. It's an incredible comeback. You know, they kicked five goals till three quarter time, and they kicked seven in the last quarter to to win the game. It's an incredible comeback. And what doesn't get talked about? They they got nineteen points up. Surely then got back to within seven pretty quickly. And it was, you know, had, had that game gone another three or four minutes, it was a long last quarter as they say on the show. Uh, it's a good muscle to win the game. But you know, Hawthorne were the best team all year. It would have been. Criminal had they not won the premiership, but they got themselves together just at the right time. Let's have a look at 1972. Peter Hudson started 1972 in sensational style. Playing against Melbourne at the Glenferry Oval, the Hawks champion Spearhead had kicked eight goals late in the second term. He may have failed by just one goal to eclipse Pratt's record in the 1971 Grand Final, but against the Demons, he was in magnificent form. Peter Hudson stars at the very start. What happens from there, Ash? Well, this is my clear memory. It was 72 out of five that I was into footy, and I remember staying at home listening to this game and being shattered, listening to Peter Hudson being taken. I can still remember being in my room listening to the game as Hudson 
get carried off the ground. Eight goals before half time. He might have broken the team's record the way he was going that day. He was in unbelievable form. Yet, does his knee in a marking incident late in the second quarter. Doesn't play again for 18 months. He said, um, had a podcast I do last year, he said that it was just a standard ACL. Would have been 12 months in, you know, would have, would have been out for 12 months. Um, but those days they couldn't get the diagnosis or the treatment right. And he didn't really, wasn't really back at his best until he played one cameo year later on. But it was a huge, huge story. And it starts off enough. They had no chance of going back to back after that. They just had a revolving door of full force for the next five years. Um, but it was a massive story, the biggest name in the game. Um, just going down like that in the first, in, before half time of round one. Slung to the ground by Melbourne defender Barry Burke, Hudson's knee twisted under him. His agony was felt by every spectator. It was to ground him for nearly 22 months, and the reigning Premier faded into obscurity without him. Tragedy strikes for Hudson, and uh, as is custom on sensational 70s, Straight into the Biffo. We've had Peter Hudson get injured, but no, let, let, it's 1972. Let's go straight into the let's go straight into the violence. And uh, uh, I think it's uh, Don Rainsford speaks about how Des Tudnam is now the Essendon captain, uh, winning the first four matches and instilled a toughness in them. There were no reports from this brawl. He instilled a toughness in them that occasionally came to the boil, like this day at the MCG against Melbourne. There were no reports from this brawl. The odd broken nose and ripped Guernsey provided the only aftermath. Just the odd broken nose and ripped jumper. Uh, it's incredibly violent. <laughs> that game, that Melbourne Essendon game, again, I've got dim, really dim memories of reading about it at the time. Cracker Cannon talked about that game. He, he was one of the players who got a broken nose, as referred to by Don Rainsford. Cracker tells the story, it's a great story about that game. What a filthy, dirty game. The death hub and basically Essendon were... Mediocre. I think Sheedy recognised that Essendon when he took over as well. They were so mediocre and a very timid middle class sort of club. Oh, really? And Not like Tudnam these days. <laughs> Tudnam walks in there and says they've got to get a bit harder and tougher. Basically, dirty. So mm. a lot of the dirtiness of, of, of that year came about because of Essendon. And for the record, and. Don mentions this in the, you know, Biffo recap of all the violence that happened in 1972. There were, for the VFL Tribunal, it was a hectic year, just the 30 reports. For the VFL Tribunal, it was a hectic year. They heard 30 reports. And, and he just <laughs> lists off all the, violent, all the violence that happened and all the reports that happened. And, you know, it's just part of the game. It's just, you know... <laughs> you go and watch. Occasionally, someone kick a goal, but you go. You come for the fight. Stay for the footy. <laughs> well, there, there was a fight every game, so it just goes that thing. Um, and yeah, celebrated. Nothing really changed. Celebrated, the bloke got off. Um, it was a pretty significant year um, in football, and uh, that's of course because it was the first year of the final five. So the final system had changed, and therefore uh, that would include VFL Park, the dual crown, the future of Australian rules football as part of the finals uh, schedule. Yeah, so they played two games on the Saturday, the first two weeks of finals. Um, the elimination final was at Waverley, the qualifying at the MCG, then the next week they did the second semi at Waverley and the first semi at the MCG. I went to my first final in 72, Collingwood St Kilda, the first semi-finals. Uh, which was just magic being an MCG in front of, you know, the 70,000, 80,000 people there that day, which is unbelievable, behind the goals in the old Southern stand. 
it was um, but a big deal. And, you know, a lot of the traditionalists, having you know, read about it subsequently, playing finals at the BFL Park was tough-tutted by the old-timers. But, you know, but we talk about the BFL had an eye for, eye for quid and eye for progress and decided it was time to play big finals games at their ground, which you really can't blame them. They've invested a lot of money into it. But it was a, a pretty record for weeks in the lead-up to the finals, and would explain the final five to people like it was um, Pythagoras' theorem or something. It just had, you know... Winner of two and three goes into the phase one in the second week, and the loser of two and three plays the winner of four v five. And was therefore that there were two things in the footy record guaranteed last few weeks of the season. There was how the final five worked, and the directions to get out of a car park at BFL Park. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm probably the last of the generation to experience VFL Park because I went there a fair bit in the late 90s and uh, even I have memories of just how long that car park was and I was a child not with the best not not known for my patience well imagine when there were no eastern there was no sort of oh. Monash freeway or anything and it was just paddy it was a two lane road you used to go to VFL Park it was like going the country across Spring Vale Road and it was basically paddy the last big this is the Peters factory just before Spring Vale Road and after Springvale Road, there, there ain't much happening until, you know, in the 70s. And you see there were just as many paddocks as there were houses. And it was remarkable to see it over 30 years, how built up it became. But uh, it just, it really was a long way away. And even at age 10 or whatever, you couldn't work out. Just really given the demographic centre of Melbourne, you just couldn't quite, quite work out what the logic was of why they bought that piece of land. In, you understand why they bought it. Couldn't understand why they bought it in that area, though. I do notice, so Richmond and Carlton end up playing in the grand final, but they also have a draw in one of the earliest finals at VFL Park. And uh, back then, replays weren't just for the grand final. They were for every final that went up until 1990. Um, But you know what I did notice in the final siren? And if you listen closely, um, at VFL Park, it's a draw. But for some reason, they start playing the Carlton theme song. It's a draw. Carlton and Richmond have drawn on eight goals, 13, 61 points. So next week, the kick from Jezalenko after the siren won't score, and it's a draw. It was the fifth finals tie in BFL history and shocked the experts who had installed Richmond as the hottest premiership favourites in years. For field umpire Ian Coates, the action was only over momentarily. As he walked from the ground, he was attacked from behind by an enraged spectator. I didn't see what happened. It was a nasty scene. The of the match, yeah, I noticed that on the video. I had picked that up before, so I'm not sure what they're thinking was. Um, speaking of theme songs, 1972, that was the year where the Fable Singers uh, club songs were actually released. That was when they were first came, and, they were first published. And they, yeah, were, and they were recorded they, they were recorded especially for VFL Park. They were recording one day. Yep. They knocked over 12 songs or 13 because it was a football song as well in one day. Before then, they had Snacker Fitzgibbon, who was a jazz musician from Melbourne. He did these sort of rudimentary versions of the club songs on his banjo. But uh, then they went uh, up tempo and put some money into it and got the Fable Singers um, to do theirs in 72, um, a barbershop quartet. Magnificent piece of music that they are to, the, to this day. And I still don't know why any t- the AFL or any other teams have tried to do better because you can't. It's perfection. These songs are perfection. You can't replace them. 
can't do better. Uh, the AFL weren't that the hard way, and I think I would like to take credit in playing a role for making sure they weren't the hard way about trying to. I think I think you yeah I think you did too. <laughs> I think they learnt the they learnt the hard way not to touch those. They are heritage listed. Uh, they're going nowhere. Those ones, but uh, yeah, it is pretty. It, it is pretty funny when you do watch it, and all of a sudden, you know, oh, it's a draw. Everyone's just uh, in shock. They're going to be back next week, and then this rump, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> it's just pumping out. It's like that's the last thing you want to hear. <laughs> it's yeah. a draw. They did, they did play the replay of the MCG as well. That was over and out for BFL Park for the year. Oh, good. So Richmond got a home final. Um, speaking of grand finals, Richmond Carlton, they play in a grand final. Um, they rewrote the record books. What was the final score? How, how many goals? What was it? 28-9. Uh, 28-9. 177 to Richmond 22-18-150. Ridiculous. Yes. Um, it was, well, Richmond's score was the lowest, the highest ever score, equal to the highest ever score in a grand final. Using Donald Trump's logic, Richmond actually won the grand final. No <laughs> team had ever kicked, no team had ever kicked that much. It's been more than I'll the grand it. final before. So really, Richmond, you take that. I'll take right. it. It's so, a fake premiership. Um, <laughs> yep. But great piece of coaching. Richmond had been the better team all year. Carlton had come through the hard way. Carlton had to play every. They played four finals in the lead up to that because um, Richmond won the replay. They had another week off, and um, yeah, it was a. a Brilliant coach from John Nichols. He kicked seven and Robert Walls kicked six and Jazza or someone else kicked six. It was just incredible game of football. Really high scoring. The complete opposite of the grand final year before that Hawthorne first and quarter slog was fast and free flowing. The huge upset. Which were a really warm papers to win that game. Uh, and violent. And incredibly violent, as as was the norm at the time. And we go back to that legendary conversation. Uh, we've got Tommy Hafey in an outstanding uh, uh, yakka skivvy. It's it's disappointing he's not wearing the muscle tight Adidas t shirt. You know that's what's what you'd normally associate Tommy Hafey with wearing. But uh, John Nichols is also there, and he seems to have the same jacket the Fonz uh, was wearing at the time. He's got that outstanding <laughs> leather jacket. And, the, you know, they just, uh, you know, for Hafey's going on, it was a freakish game. And, you know, Big Nick is talking about just putting the strength in the forward line. But it's just, as you say, you just, you'd give you anything to see the raw vision the of that. The real freak sort of a game, particularly by Carlton. I didn't think the scores were any real indication of the play because I thought they had played us, you know, by uh, many, many goals. I thought we were struggling all day long. You know, just going with one thing, our defence, we we didn't worry as much about our defence and we just concentrated on trying to kick, you know, a bigger school than Richmond, which probably sounds, you know, an old cliche, <laughs> yeah, but that was the style of play, really, in those eras. The season doesn't stop at the grand final in 72 because, uh, naturally, being state-based competitions, we then have the Australian Championships. Uh, and uh, we, made a, yeah, we, yeah. we made a lovely bloke from Perth called Mel Brown. But the newly crowned Premiers 1972 had a chilling anti-climax at the Australian Team Championships in Adelaide. There, the Blues met one Malcolm Brown. It was a meeting that left an impression on many of them. To make matters worse, Carlton lost the fight to the bulky West Australian and the Championships to North Adelaide. For many Victorians, this telecast from Adelaide gave them their first sight of the outrageous Mr Brown. Well, here's the thing. I remember these games and you would, as much as you despised Carlton, over the course of the season, if they were representing the VFL uh, in this, the national championships afterwards, you were a die-hard Carlton supporter. But they, what they didn't show, I'm not sure the video showed this, they beat East Perth 
with Mal Brown knocking blokes out left, right and centre. But they were so banged up, Carlton, that it lost. I reckon they played two games. I reckon they played the next day. I reckon they played it over two days. Wow. I reckon they played North Adelaide the next day, coached by former Tiger Mike Patterson. And I think they lost by a point to North Adelaide the following day at the Adelaide Oval. So it was a hard slog for for the Blues. But um, yeah, those end-of-season national championship games were really good. This extent for footage is on another week as well, which is even more reason to look forward to it. But, uh, yeah, that Mal Brown footage is incredible. Just unhinged. And it really starts a proud tradition of Carlton getting into brawls in off-season matches. <laughs> yes, it does. And uh, two generations of Browns and their vigorous approach to the game uh, were introduced to it as well. So that was like Victoria. and enjoy the footy VFL Park style. Comfort's our goal. Action's our game. And when you come to VFL Park, the home of our great Australian game, you get both. We've got the most modern facilities, the finest ground and the brightest lights. You can park your car, enjoy a meal and watch the champions and do it in style. Because that's VFL Park. It's comfort, it's colour and it's action. When you want football, when you want the best... You want the puck. Let's take some time out now to talk about our major sponsor. It is, of course, leaguetees.com.au. And who better to get involved with Sensational 70s and the Australian Football Video Film Festival's coverage, epic episode, I should say, of the iconic film that is Sensational 70s, than leaguetees.com.au. Uh I think by now you would all know League Tees, the uh, League Tees footy shop packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies, and all things retro footy. Every week is retro round at leaguetees.com.au, and every week is the Sensational 70s. And if you're looking for Sensational 70s, League Tees has you covered. Now, I'm just having a look at the League Tees shop. Uh, when it comes to the Sensational 70s, you could get a Ron Barassi t-shirt with Sensational 70s on it. Uh, how good. Um there's also the Windvale footy T-shirt, not the Skivvy, but we're hoping the Skivvy is in the in the works uh, for your Hawthorne supporters. There's a World of Sport T-shirt, uh, you know, a simple YouTube of World of Sport. Uh, if you weren't around, is is worth your time, I think. Uh, there's a North Have Courage. There's VFL Players Association. There's the winners. There's the Saints Disco. Uh, there's a VFL Park T-shirt. Um, Oh, it, it's got it all. If you want to go back to footy in the 70s and look the part, you need to go to one place at one place only. That's leaguetees.com.au. Retro footy gear for retro footy fans. It's simply the best or simply the best if you're into the rugby league and you have a look at their magnificent rugby league range. But uh, And also, while we're actually talking about leaguetees.com.au, I'm told. Now, it depends when you're listening because the T-shirt might be out now. There is a Peter Landy Sensational 70s t-shirt in the works. So check that out at the League Tees shop right now, leaguetees.com.au, because I know that's going to be an all-time bestseller. They'll be flying off the shelves at leaguetees.com.au. Look, it's simple. If you're listening to this on your phone, get on the browser, 
punchinleaguetees.com.au and just go on an impulse buying frenzy. Don't worry about the financial consequences. Just buy. Buy, buy, buy. Leaguetees.com.au. Let's rip into 1973. The VFL introduced the 10-year rule in 1973 and the club sank deeper into debt as they bartered for champions like John Rantel, Barry Davis, Carl Ditterich, Doug Wade, Wee Georgie Visit and Adrian Gallagher, all suddenly on football's open market. Probably akin to what free agency is now, what's what's old is new again, uh... The year starts uh, with North Melbourne, uh, the North Melbourne War Chest, as it's known these days, but it was also a thing in 1973 because uh, the the hapless kangaroos, the yet-to-win-a-premiership, constantly cellar-dweller North Melbourne, uh, just went for broke under a thing called the 10-year rule. What exactly was the 10-year rule? Well, 10-year rule, as you said, was free agency. It was basically, if you played 10 years for a club, you had free clearance to another club if you so chose, and North Melbourne went big time, and they got... Uh, Barry Davis and Essendon to be their captain. Doug Wade, full forward from Geelong, um, and um, John Rantel from South Melbourne. And, you know, South had no success at all. You couldn't blame Rantel for wanting to try elsewhere at the end of success. Doug Wade's a superstar. My former colleague and uh, mate, uh, sort of mate, Charlie Happel, big Geelong supporter, he followed Doug Wade to North in 73 and stuck with North ever since. So Doug Wade was a draw card. Not a lot of people remember is that they almost got David Parkin and Carl Dittrich in the same hall. They were very close to getting both of them as well. So Parkin ended up saying Hawthorne and Dittrich went to Melbourne. So I think Melbourne offered him more money. But the 10 year old was incredible. And um, it was such a shock to the system in footy that they, as the video, as the show tells us, it was rescinded in May. They sort of got rid of it. But in a way, it went great if it kept. It would have been wonderful for games that kept, but people just couldn't. It couldn't. People couldn't cope with the uh, you know, super, superstars not bleeding for the jumper and you know playing and, and taking bigger coin elsewhere. So it was actually a very mature, forward-thinking way of doing it. North Melbourne, with Alan Layla was just ambitious and brash and bold. The way he ran North, the way he later ran the VFL. We'll talk about that probably in the second part of this when he became VFL president. But he just made North a place he wanted. I mean, this decrepit footy ground in the shadow of a gasometer suddenly it was the number one destination club in Australia. It was incredible. It's it's interesting you mentioned about the reaction to the 10-year rule because there still is a bit of that these days because, like, we all know these deals are done during the year, but we pretend that players aren't going to certain clubs the next year. Where, in to, to use an example, uh, in rugby league, it's pretty common to say, well, you know, I'm playing for the Broncos this year, but next year I'm going to South Sydney. And people in rugby league are like, yeah, cool, play on, you know, as long as you have a crack for the rest of the season. But there's still that culture in footy, Australian rules mm. footy, where it's like, oh, are you traitor, you treasonous traitor. How could you? Yeah, and very smart play by the VFL. I'm not sure when the fixture was mm. revealed or released for 73, but Carl Dittrich did went to Melbourne after 10 years at St Kilda, and they, Melbourne played St Kilda in round one of 73 at the MCG. So it was a nice bit of uh, manoeuvring by the VFL for the fixture. But, um, all eyes on North, they played Hawthorne in the first game of 73 with, with their foreign legion. But uh, Dittrich going from St Kilda to Melbourne was a pretty big deal as well. 
few significant things. Let's to, to, to talk about the Biffo. Uh, it was that that was the year the uh, VFL first used video evidence. Nineteen seventy three uh, was when the uh, VFL opted for some video evidence at the tribunal. So there was the players' code with a bit of video to explain. You know, oh, it's just a mistake. You know, I was he was just in my way uh, accidentally. Um, but uh, another, another bit of. My favourite bit of uh, Don Rainsford's uh, Biffo recaps year by year. Um, it's something of it's it's just just so crisp and clean. Where he goes, uh, Richmond's Francis Burke got a biff from North Sam Kekovich, but the North forward was found not guilty. Richmond's Francis Burke got a biff from Sam Kekovich, but the North forward was found not guilty. And in the vision, Sam Kekovich clearly punches Francis Burke in the face. Man, man Burke looks stunned. <laughs> After being hit by Kekovich, it's fantastic. Some of, I covered the tribunal for a while in the 90s, and some of the creative uh, language used by players was uh, was quite good. And they were well-schooled by the players in the 60s, who went before them in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. What, what was the most jaw-dropping, unbelievable excuse you heard when you were covering the tribunal? Oh, I can't remember, but it was it was often the advocate. It was... Uh, Ian Finger Sinlay being the players' advocate who just would just come up with these sort of, oh, you know, this is under pressure with this, your issues at work. And, well, your, your, your hero, Dale Wayden, was often these. You know, he's, he's the diabetes excuse. <laughs> he hadn't had his inside. <laughs> that got used about six times. It's a tribunal for every time. That, knowing Flea, that doesn't su- surprise me in the slightest. He hears that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, another significant moment. Uh, there's two significant things. We get a bit of vision of the uh, social club at South Melbourne having a bit of a big night out because they've broken their uh, losing streak of 29 losses, um, which is uh, some pretty cool footage there. But uh, there was jubilation at South Melbourne after the Swans beat Geelong. It was South's first win for the season. In fact, it was the first time the Swans had won in 29 matches. Um, of course, another iconic moment uh, in Hawthorne history and footy history uh, is uh, Peter Hudson's little cameo appearance. He, he comes back. If there was a highlight for the year, you couldn't go past the return of Peter Hudson. Overweight, tentative, and with a question mark over his fitness, Hudson mesmerised the Collingwood defence with the same ease he had shown nearly two years before. He flew from Tasmania, caught a helicopter to VFL Park, and at 27 years of age, picked up the threads of his football career. I was there that game. It was, it was an incredible game um, out of Waverley. Managed my dad's time, I meant to get us into a corporate box, which in those days was just basically a, uh, a uh, fake leather seat in a wood-panelled area at the back of the level two of the members, it was nothing, it was a bloke bringing you a Coke, uh, a way to bring you a Coke, that was about as, what a, a corporate box was back then, but it was a, a magical day. Oh, he got goals, Hawthorne still lost by three goals, he came back at John Kenny's request, Hawthorne needed to win to make the finals, and uh, it was the last sort of, last roll of the dice for Hudson to come back and play, but uh, yeah, extraordinary, and you see from the footage, he's, he's overweight. He's, as he tells the story, he did his knee again. Like not, he, he blew up a cartilage in the first quarter. So he was playing on memory and still kicked eight goals. Uh, an incredible, just be one of his greatest. I mean, he no kicked 16 goals in the game once and a few other back, uh, bags as well. But that eight goals at that day would be just about the best game of league footy he ever played. And it really is, you know, you don't celebrate your team's losses very often, Dylan. Great games when your team's lose, you tend to, you know, 
forget about them after a while. But this is Hawthorne supporters still talk about what a magic day in footy this was, even though they lost to Collingwood. And his mode of transport? Well, yes, he took the. Uh, well, he had to come over that morning. He couldn't leave on the Friday night because Norman Gunson was playing at the Granada Tavern in Hobart that he managed the uh, the hotel. So he couldn't leave the night before because he had to manage Norman Gunson. So he got a heli- he got a plane and a helicopter the next day. And there's some sort of about the fog. He flew on an empty plane. Um, made it to Edson Airport at Tom Lane, jumped on a helicopter and flew over the city, landed one of the many paddocks out near Waverley to go to the game. So it was uh, an incredible story. And he told us, I mean, he's told the story like 5,000 times and every single time he tells it beautifully about what a, what a day it was. Mm, yep. Uh, the first, the original helicopter from Melbourne Airport trip, uh, now associated with Bronwood Bishop, but that's for another, that's for another show. Um, the grand, the uh, sensational 70s features montages. And does them brilliantly because uh, you, we love a good montage, and we get our first montage in 1973, which is just you know the top marks from 73. They're all fantastic, but the choice of music that they used for this was I don't know genius or bizarre because it appears to be some very 70s band playing a cover of "Ubla D Ubla Da" by the Beatles. There was the grace of Keith Gregg, and there were marks like these in 1973. Come out in '73, John. So I've said to you, I was watching. Why is how is this song relevant to a March montage in the VFL from 1973? If anyone can tell me, I'd love to know. It's it's just bizarre. Um, the grand final, a, a very good grand final. I've watched this one a couple of times. Uh, 1973 grand final, Richmond versus Carlton. Um, if you want the most on-brand Richmond at the time match, the most Richmond of Richmond, ruthless Richmond matches, uh, the 1973 grand final is your answer because uh, Richmond won at all costs, and I mean all costs by, you know, you know, Neil Baum knocking out Vin White. And then along came Neil Baum, and he sorted out Carlton's chances once and for all. And uh, Richmond going on to record a glorious win uh, in the grand final. Um, another thing I noticed watching that is, of course, there's a centre diamond. Well, you can thank Hawthorne for the centre diamond because there was one of the, the Hawthorne game plan in 71 was basically... As Dave, again, the great Dave Parker would say, is crowd the centre, start a fight, win the free kick, kick clear, and kick the ball to Hudson, who all the space cleared out for him. So the congestion is in the middle part of the ground. A bit like today's foot in a lot of ways, but this centre bounces um, uh, was a, considered, rightly considered to be a blight on the game. So the Diamonds introduced four players in the centre square the Ruckman, the Ruck Rover, the Rover, and the Sentiment. Each team, and they were the only ones that in at the centre diamond, which later became the centre square, I think, in 75. If I'm right. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it, it did change the way the game was played, and it allowed skill, and what it did was good. It allowed great ruck work to happen again, it allowed skillful, you put your good players where the action is, 
uh, in, in the centre, you know, centre bound, had a bit of space to work with. So it was a very good uh, introduction for footy. I was scared of Richmond as a in the 73 because they were tough and nasty. Their supporters were tough and nasty. You'd walk from Richmond Station to MCG through the, or you'd park in Richmond somewhere and walk through those old terrace houses near Richmond Station doing and it was, it weren't night. I was scared of Richmond. Sounds back glorious. Then. And then you had Neil Barn, who he made now, he's the most erudite, intelligent person who can hold a conversation about anything going on in the world, yet he was an unmitigated thug. <laughs> when he played footy. Lots of instances, not just in this game, but throughout in in the show, but uh, at his finest in 73, in the grand final. It's it's as Richmond as Richmond of old gets, the 1973 grand final. <laughs> I think it's glorious. Uh, I, I quite love everything that game stood for, but uh, I can understand the uh, re- reaction. But, you know, there's, there's probably similar things said about the uh, current day Richmond team at the moment. So, you know. I'm happy to embrace that, uh, but you won the you won the you won the second and the third that day as well. Yeah, that's right. I wrote a piece about a few years ago for the footy record. Uh, I did a retrospective look at that day. So dominated that, as they someone said, the under 17s the SX Heights, which was the old Richmond Force, they won their competition whenever it was played as well. So they won everything, Richmond. And then, of course, after both years, when Keith Reed, when KB didn't win the Brownlow, they asked up both years, but. Um, it's yeah, still an injustice. A mighty, a mighty club at their hateful, arrogant best. The well, 73 Richmond. Yeah. It's good to know the Karma Train didn't get that club for the good part of 37 years afterwards. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, no, no, and so many good players as well. Um, they, hard, they were hard. They were skillful. They were tough. They knew how to win big games. They imported players magnificently. I mean, Ian Stewart had come across a couple of years before. Really important player, um, Robbie McGee. He was just a, you know, he's just a, not he's just a rugged defender with not much going from footscray. Comes to Richmond, becomes a really good player. Wayne Walsh, Paul Sproul from Essendon. They just Graham Richmond knew how to find really good players from other clubs, and they recruited so well. I mean, all credit to the owner, you know, making the fun of them. But they were they were a really great club then. But then, you know, they, we'll talk about this at other times. But they, you probably your eighties and nineties didn't come up. They got stuck in the time war. Almost after seventy four, I think uh, Mike. They Sheen... caught lighting the bottle in nineteen eighty, but really after yeah. seventy four, they just didn't. They didn't involve after seventy four. It's, it's it's very well covered in Mike Sheen's doco from a few years back, prior to uh, that gl- the, the glorious run the Mighty Tigers are having. Uh, Richmond, the lost years, which kind of uh, covers all that yeah. ground. Um, let's have a look at nineteen seventy four. Melbourne Vikings Spree again dominated headlines as the 1974 season approached. From Woodville in South Australia, they secured a high flyer named Malcolm Blight. He won the McGarry Medal in 1972, but was destined to reach even greater heights. This, of course, is the last year of black and white television in Australia. So this is the last bit of sensational 70s that's in nothing but black and white vision, although the 1974 grand final is actually filled in colour because I've got the video, but for some reason it's in black and white and sensational 70s, so whatever. Um, But... uh, we go back to a thing that's still a th- a prominent these days and still spoken about come every trade period, the North Melbourne war chest. And uh, this is probably the best uh, scoop of North Melbourne's war chest because who did North Melbourne uh, recruit that year? Uh, they recruited – well, they got Barry Cable back. He played that one year in 1970. That yeah. Uh, features in the first year of the show. Um, 
They got him back from Perth and uh, they got a McGarry medalist called Malcolm Blight from Woodville. Um, that's all I needed, just to give them a bit of extra class after coming from 12th to 6th the year, the year before. So they were sort of destination club and they did a magnificent job in, in landing those two players and then they made the grand final that year um, to lose to Richmond, who won the second flag in a row. But North were an excitement machine. Funny year 74 because my recollection of 74 was that Richmond couldn't beat Hawthorne, who finished third. Hawthorne couldn't beat North. So Hawthorne lost by... So some Hawthorne tables were afraid they got away because they lost by five points to North in the semi-final. And they were pretty confident they would have knocked over Richmond in the grand final, having beaten them twice already that year. But uh, Richmond uh, were great. There's a brilliant piece of footage of, uh, from that grand final I show on the, on the show. That's a, the Kevin Sheedy handball. To Mike Green, he has a free kick in the fourth pocket, runs up, handballs over the North defender's head to Mike Green, who kicks a goal in the goal square. That's the sort of the early sign of the lateral thinking, smart thinking, the smartest person in the room that Kevin Sheedy became in footy for probably the next 30 years. Uh, we can't, we speak about the violence uh, that features prominently through the entire decade of sensational 70s, but 1974 has the granddaddy of them all, which is still spoken about to this day. Uh, and uh, it looks brilliant in the black and white vision. Uh, the Windy Hill brawl uh, between <laughs> Richmond and Essendon, because watching a Richmond-Essendon game or a North Melbourne-Collingwood game in black and white is uh, very hard to tell, but... Uh, Oh, <laughs> even even with that grainy black and white vision, that did not look like a uh, a pleasant little uh, push and shove. The most shameful spectacle of the decade took place at Windy Hill on May 18, and the repercussions were still being felt in the courts months later. It was a brawl that left a sour taste in everyone's mouths. In a marathon sitting of the VFL Tribunal, Mal Brown was suspended for one match for assault. Richmond Stephen Parsons was suspended for four matches. Ron Andrews received six matches. Essendon physical education instructor Jim Bradley got six matches. Essendon runner Laurie Ashley got six weeks. And Essendon rover John Casson got off on a striking charge. Such was the fury of the brawl that Richmond's huge ruckman Brian Roberts didn't even think he'd been punched. He thought he'd been kicked in the head by the troopers' horse. Well, a couple of few things to note about that. Firstly, there's the kid who runs out of the middle yes. of the Who's been tracked down. I think the footy show is the first one to track him down. Um, and they, he was explained the story about how he got out there. There's a Richmond official, an Essendon official, lying unconscious on the grass, lying totally flat, just being king hit. Lying, it's just it's just madness. It's absolute zaneness that uh, this episode had. Mel Brown, of course, is in the middle of it all. Um, and yeah, it was a uh, it was a pretty shameful day for footy. You know what else happened that day? John, you should know this. I'd be disappointed if you don't know the other momentous event for that day. What was that? Federal election. Oh, was it really? And actually, now that you mentioned that we're on this, yes, so uh, uh, that was Whitlam's second election. Uh, Lindsay Tanner, the future member for Melbourne, federal member for Melbourne, turned Essendon president. I think he was actually a witness in because the uh, Windy Hill brawl went to court. Didn't go to the AFL tribunal, actually went to court, and Lindsay Tanner was a witness. Yes, and it was such a big deal that, the Windy Hill Ball is such a big deal that actually shared the front page of the election and the aftermath for the first few days. And the age of the Only in, in the, oh, in the age. The front, in the front, it was guaranteed. It would be the front page leave. Forget the election. Yeah. But in the age, this brawl is such a big deal that for the first few days of the following week, so I looked it up 
on uh, on Google News search. Uh, this was a big deal because it really made the front page of the age. Yeah, because because the age didn't have a footy focus as much as it probably. There's probably more of it now, but back then footy didn't go. On. You, you were a journalist at the age back in the day. Footy never went in the front page. In fact, I'm pretty sure because I've spoken to uh, Nick Place. Uh, uh, friend of the program, and he's the journo that wrote the Nicky Winmar story. Uh, Wayne Ludwig took the picture, but he and Wayne actually had to yeah. lobby to get even that on the front page of the age. I had a front page story about football in 1992 okay. because it was the first time the AFLPA lodged a lot of claims to the AFL. Okay. It was a pre- precursor to a CBA. Yep. Um, and it was one of the first times I had a, ca- a Canberra cartoon with a story I'd written. Which is a pretty big thrill that's as well. That's a big thrill. Um, that, 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 that's a big thrill. That was a big thrill. Yeah. I think it was probably, I think it was the second time I'd had a Tamburg cartoon to a story I'd written. But yeah, so that just shows the magnitude of the story. Because in, in those days, the ages, economics and politics and foreign affairs were the three staples of the front page. So for Footy D on the front page was a, a really big deal. But it was, a, it was a terrible episode. I think the AFL or VFL tightened up a lot of rules and regulations about match, the conduct on match days. As a result of as a result of that brawl, who won the game? I always forget who won the game. <laughs> no, no, actually, no. I have to get on no, AFL no. tables and look it up. Who actually won the match? <laughs> I don't know. No, no. <laughs> um, and yeah, Don Rainsford uh, lists the very long list of the comprehensive long list of suspensions from that game, which we won't go off. Um, Still on 1974, um, it's the last year of black and white TV, but another thing I've noticed, I reckon that's the first year we actually see billboards at the ground, so it's no longer the cheer squad bunting with, you know, come on, the magpies all over the fence. It's proper billboards. So we're seeing, I, I see a lot of Ampole, uh, Carvin Mild, Phillips Company, Mulbro, Carlton Draft, just just elite sponsors. Uh, Retlow TV probably got there a bit as well. Um well, this is the commercialism that Peter Landy railed about in the editorial. Oh. This is the commercialism to help pay his help pay his salary, of course. Yes, uh, <laughs> you don't you do more to uh, higher than now, uh, Pete. But uh, yeah, it was that's right. The, the meticulously crafted banners, you know, Cripsy Galars from Carlton and Hawthorne had an ode to the Mount Snowy River that ran the length of the Southern Stand. But yeah, those disappeared in, in favour of advertising hoardings um, that were quite valuable property pretty quickly. For the clubs, yeah, a lot of a lot of tobacco brands, very very noticeable. But uh, cigarettes, one beer, two TV company, three, and then petrol. They were probably the big four. Yeah, yeah, uh, all valuable sponsorship uh, opportunities uh, there. Um, Seventy four grand final. Tigers go back to back. They do it easy. Uh, Mel Brown was absent because he got suspended. Funnily enough, out of his fourteen matches he played for the club. Um, but uh, Richmond were very much the evil, uh, non-wanted people. Everyone was barracking for North Melbourne because it was North Melbourne's first time, but, you know, that didn't happen. Um, but and a few other significant things happened. Uh, it was the first year of the VFL Players Association, which Don Rainsford mentions, and um, yeah. Hawthorne uh, leave Glen Ferry and uh, move to Prince's Park. They did move to Prince's Park. I mean, they've outgrown... Went very oval. Look, there's a street on one side of the ground, a railway line on the other. They weren't going to move either of those, so they eventually uh, moved. They had a few different offers from uh, Coleman had a good crack. And Coleman was tempted because there's only a couple of really only a couple of cars down the road, but ended up moving to Carlton, which turned out to be a very successful move, as we'll see in '76 
and we talk about that, you can see a new grandstand being built in the background at Princess Park, which will become known as the Hawthorne Stand. Um, soon to so be demolished. A lot of was that funny look. Yeah, soon to be demolished. Um, a lot of Hawthorne supporters never liked going to Princess Park, ridiculous because the team was so good for most of the time they played there, but it was a, a controversial move that they moved there. Um, but that was the big one. Now, you talk about the last year of black and white TV. Of course, Australia introduced colour TV in May, in March 1st, 1975. But trial broadcasts started to take place for about three or four months before. Often, you, if you look at the, the green, you talk about the green guide before, or the TV radio guide, as it was known back then, Dylan. Sometimes it'd show, it'd be like a sporting event on end, it would say in colour between 2 and 4 pm, for example. Ooh. If you were an early adopter of the colour TV, watch bits of colour. VFL did some trials with Channel 7 late in the season of filming games in colour. And, of course, that's why there is colour footage available of that game, even though it's in black and white. I don't know why it's in black and white for the sensational 70s. Because um, the video releases in colour. Yeah. Of the grand final. So, and, of course, which team do you think was the first team to wear coloured shorts in 74? Uh... Oh, I don't know. Who was it? Was it Hawthorne? No, the Entrepreneurs, North Melbourne. Of course they did. Because uh, every team had oh, black no, shorts, white shorts. Black shorts, white shorts, but North Melbourne midway through that season. If you look at that grand final, they're wearing blue shorts on that um, on that colour video of that grand final because they were the smart club that was ahead of the rest. And um, that's why they're the blue shorts. Well, there you go. Fashion. Football fashion at its finest, uh, coloured shorts. Now it's there's a whole plethora of that. Uh, Ash, we've just gotten through the first half of Sensational 70s, the black and white stuff. Uh, we're going to come back in a couple of weeks with the second half. Uh, so in the meantime, let's just light up a Marlboro, uh, enjoy a uh, – what, what, what are some other 70s products we can do uh, here while we wait? Uh, you have a Yoo-Hoo. Yep. I'll just like a right, Yoo-Hoo. Oh, okay. Yoo-Hoo flavoured milk. Yep. And have uh, go put my A1 jeans on. Fantastic. And a Miller shirt. Oh, that, just comfort, just comfort. Uh, we'll look at the second half of Sensational 70s uh, next time on the Australian Football Video Film Festival. about Sensational 70s. We've, we've, we've gone through the first part of Sensational 70s, the black and white era from 1970 to 1974. Now, if you're listening to this in real time, as in time of release, the next edition, part two, 1975 to 1979, when football is now seen in glorious colour, will be out in a fortnight's time. And uh, we, uh, we get into some very deep and heavy stuff, as well as all the great highlights that... Arguably the goat of football cinema, Sensational 70s, uh, has to offer. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name is Dylan Leach. Thank you for listening. Um, If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, a review of the show would be fantastic. We'd really appreciate one if you do like us and hit the subscribe button and we'll keep making shows. Uh, A big thank you to, of course, our sponsor, leagetees.com.au. If you're looking for Sensational 70s merchandise... 
they've got it. And I'm told the Peter Landy t-shirt is out. And uh, boy, it is one of their best. Uh, and of course, Nick Bleeker for use of the studio. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival. We'll be back with Ash in our next episode covering 1975 to 1979 in the sensational 70s. We'll catch you then. Thank you.